my hand. And it's pretty incredible every single week that we have a team that not only is skilled musically, but I truly love their heart and I love the heart of Chris as our worship pastor and I hope that you guys were blessed. Those of you that came to worship night on Friday night, man, it's good just to get a before the throne of Jesus sometimes and just worship. And so um, today we are going to continue on in our sermon series through the book of Esther. I hope that you guys are enjoying our journey through the book of Esther. Y'all enjoying and reading along? And as we uh, progress through the book of Esther, there's so much loaded in this story. And interestingly enough, this is the only book of the Bible, as we mentioned at the forefront, that does not utilize or talk about the word, have the word God or Lord in it. And yet God is all over the pages of the book of Esther. So last week we looked at Esther chapter 3, and we saw Mordecai do the right thing, and yet he preserved the life of the king, and yet it looked like he was overlooked. He was overlooked for a promotion that he probably should have received that he doesn't know yet at this point in the story that he will end up receiving. And the king exalts this guy named Haman. And then Haman, becoming the second in command in Persia, had a little bit of an ego problem and did not like the fact that Mordecai, a Jew, did not bow down before him as a position and person of authority. And so because of the fact that Mordecai defied Haman, Haman then launches a plan not only to kill Mordecai, but he's like, you know what? I'm going to handle all of those Jews in Persia, not just Mordecai. I'm sick of him and I want to ask this guy. I'm going to ask all of them out. And so he launches this plan to be able to have the king to issue an edict in order for him to be able to exterminate all the Jews that are in Persia. Now, one of the things that we learned from this story in our one true statement was this, that faithfulness to God does not exclude you from difficulties. Faithfulness to God does not exclude you from difficulties. I wish I could say that the Christian life was an easy life. I'd be selling you a bill of false goods if I told you that that was the reality. God promised us, as a matter of fact, that we would have trouble in this world. And so Mordecai does the right thing, and yet it seems like uh, he gets backlash for actually doing the right thing. But here's the, here's the kicker, is that even though faithfulness to God does not exclude us from difficulties, my encouragement to you and to me as well is be faithful anyways. Be faithful anyways. And that's what we see through Mordecai's life, and that's hopefully my encouragement to all of us as we just kind of give a brief recap of where we were at last week. Now, I'm going to consistently remind you throughout this series that there is two major themes that kind of center around in the book of Esther. Two theological concepts that are kind of both sides of the same coin, okay? And these concepts we have already seen working, and we're going to see them very clearly working in the text that we're going to look at today. Those two things are the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God talks about God's comprehensive rule over all of life. That means he's the big dog. That means that he's in charge. He has all the authority. He has all the power. This talks about the extent to which he can exercise this authority because of who he is in his being and in his power and in his, and in his ability as creator to interact with and to be able to engage his creation. Now, that being said, the providence of God is God's gracious activity through history. It is the outworking of God's sovereignty. 
okay? So providence is the outworking of that sovereignty. The fact that he has power, the fact that he has authority, he actually moves in human history and he does things. He's working things out behind, behind the scenes like a stage director behind a closed curtain. And then all of a sudden when those curtains are open, we see on the stage of the human drama how God has been moving. So providence speaks to God's activity the way he exercises that sovereignty. Now, as we continue in the book of Esther, we reach the turning point of the story. Today, we're going to be in Esther chapter 4. We reach the supposed, the climax, so to speak, where our heroine, Esther, is faced with a tough decision, but the question then is presented, is she going to miss her opportunity to be used by God, or is she going to seize the opportunity to be used by God? I call this sermon, Seize the Moment. Now, let me go ahead and just start off by telling you a little story. There was a story of a young man who wished to marry the farmer's beautiful daughter. So he went to the farmer to ask permission, like a good old gentleman. So he goes to the farmer and he says, I'd like to have your daughter's hand in marriage. The farmer says, okay, and he responded this, son, go out there in that field and I'm going to release three bulls, one at a time. If you can catch the tail of any one of the bulls, you can marry my daughter. Sounds like an easy proposition, potentially. And so the son, you know, he wants to really marry this, marry the daughter, so he takes the farmer up on the offer. So the young man stands in the pasture awaiting the first bull. The barn door opens and out ran the biggest, meanest looking bull you had ever seen in your life. He decided that the next one of the bulls had to be a better choice than this one. So he ran over to the side, let the bull pass through the pasture and out the back gate. He's like, nah, I ain't messing with that one, okay? This is one like, he's going to hurt you. So the barn door opens again. Unbelievable. He had never seen anything so big and fierce in its life. It was worse than the first one. This bull stood there, pawing at the ground, grunting, slinging slobber everywhere as it eyed him as like he was going to eat him for lunch. Whatever the next bull was like has to be better choice than this one. So he ran to the fence and let the bull pass through the pasture throughout the back gate. The door opens a third time. A smile comes across his face. He's like, okay, finally, things are working in my favor. This comes out the weakest, scrawniest looking little bull you had ever seen. This was the one. This is the one. I'm going to get the tail of this bull. This is my, this is it. I'm finally, I'm going to get the, the farmer's daughter's hand in marriage. This is the one. So as the bull came running by, he positioned himself ready to go. And just at the right time, he jumped on the bull at the exact moment. He grabbed, but the bull had no tail. <laughs> so life is full of opportunities. Some of those are easy opportunities. Some of those are right within our grasp. Some of those kind of pass by us and we allow them to pass by us because we don't want to jump on that opportunity, proverbially speaking. Some will be easy to take advantage of and others will be difficult. However, once we let those opportunities pass, we often let opportunity pass in hopes for something greater. And then end up missing what God wants in that opportunity. Because we think that something better is going to come along. Those opportunities may never again come our way. They may pass right out the pasture and through the back gate, never to be seen again. The same thing is true when we serve Christ. 
God often opens doors and opportunities to his people, opportunities to minister to people who are hurting in need, opportunities to have areas in ministry of influence in the world that is around us. And if we allow these opportunities to pass us by in hopes of waiting something for something easier to come along, we may miss what God wants for us because we think that we are waiting for something greater when God has presented us with an opportunity. And that's a scary proposition. Here's my one true statement for you this morning. God-given opportunities can be seized by you or passed by you. God-given opportunities can be seized by you. You can grab the bull by the proverbial tail or they can pass by you. I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss God. I don't want to miss an opportunity to be used by God. I don't want to miss opportunities where God can work in and work through that his will and purposes may be accomplished. But we can either seize those opportunities or we could pass, they could pass us by. That's exactly what we see in today's story. In Esther chapter 4, the hero of the story is finally presented with an opportunity. And the opportunity is an opportunity that is filled with risk. The question is, is she going to seize the opportunity or is she going to let it pass by? So open your Bible to Esther chapter 4, or you can follow along on the screen, and we're going to see kind of two things I want to highlight in this story. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning because it sets kind of the stage and the context for the story. What I want to do is I want to go back to chapter 3 and just kind of highlight the end of chapter 3 since we're, we're jumping into chapter 4. It's going to set the stage for where we're at today. So at the end, remember at the beginning of chapter 3, Mordecai does not bow down to him in leading into this whole entire situation, which sets the evil plot of the story in motion. But I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 7, and it says this, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ashuerus, they cast pur. That is, they cast lots. They rolled dice. Before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. This is important because what they were doing in casting lots is they were casting lots because this in a pagan tradition, in a tradition that was very anti-godly with the Persians, there was a whole lot of belief in fate and mysticism. And so they believed that in casting the, the dies, kind of allowing fate to then determine what was going to be the next step. The reason they were casting the dice was to find out when the edicts that had now just been approved, when it would actually be executed. So it's really important the time frame that we're given here. So the dice land on 12 months, okay? This is going to be really important for the next element of the story. So Haman bribes the king by getting him to issue the edict for the extermination of the Jews in the land of Persia. And if you read the end of chapter 3, the, Haman says, basically, if you let me do this, I'm going to give you 10,000 pieces of silver. He bribes the king. A copy of the edict is sent out to every province in the kingdom in which Mordecai hears about and probably in some part feels responsible for. Because he's the one who, for lack of a better word, angered Haman. Verse 13. The letters were sent by the couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young, old, women, and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
So the casting of the lots was ended up and landed on 12 months, the 12th month. So basically the Jews, this happened in the first month, it lands on the 12th month. The Jews have basically about a year to then ponder the fact of their extermination. Can you imagine this looming over you for a year? Just knowing that your execution date, you actually know when you're going to be terminated. It's like as if I told you today, hey, if, uh, I'm going to tell you exactly the day that you're going to die. In this case, if they did not die for other reasons before that, they knew they were going to die on that day. They were going to be executed. They were going to be terminated by the Persians. This brings us to the events of chapter 4. We're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 9, and then we're going to camp out in verses 10 through 17. We're going to make some comments along the way as we set the stage for the story. So let's go ahead and pick up at verse 1. When Mordecai learns all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, I would too. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, remember that's where he worked essentially, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate who was clothed in sackcloth. So he, so he went up to the place where, of his employment where he was some kind of magistrate or probably governmental official, uh, as far as he can go, but he could not enter in in the, in the way in which he presented himself. So sackcloth and ashes, that's not something that we hear about today, mostly. Uh, when's the last time any of you dressed in sackcloth? Any of y'all got sackcloth inside of your closet? All right? I don't think you have a goat-haired a goat haired tunic. Basically, that's what sackcloth is. It was made of goat's hair, and it was basically kind of like something that they would put on. So what would happen is sackcloth was something that mourners put on. They would tear their regular clothes. They would put on this uncomfortable garment that basically would rub against them skin, their skin and irritate them. And it would basically remind them of this constant kind of visual thing of their body feeling uncomfortable because of the state that they were in emotionally. Catch what I just said. Their physical kind of met their internal of what they were suffering internally. They then basically wore that and it affected their physical reality as well. So mourners would wear this. They would also put ashes on their head as a way of showing extreme grief. So look at verse 3. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. There was fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. They joined right alongside of Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes. There was wailing. I want you to think, this isn't just some like closeted, like pitter party kind of cry. This is like alligator tears straight from the gut kind of cry. Crying out to God because they realize that they have a death warrant on their lives. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed. Some of your translations say that she actually walked, she was fearful. I would believe so as well because remember, she's a Jew. Her identity has not yet been revealed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So everywhere that the Jews heard this response, they all had the same response. Wailing, crying, sackcloth, ashes, praying fervently. But yet God was doing some work behind the scenes. Verse 5. Then Esther called for Hathach one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai, and in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate, 
and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 8. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went out and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So Esther is provided with a copy of the edict herself, so she's able to see the actual words that are articulated onto it. This is a moment of a specific appointed time kind of moment for Esther, where she's confronted with the reality of a decision that she's going to have to make based upon the information that she's been provided. Here's the first thing I want you to see about timing and opportunity is sometimes we say it's not the right time. Look at verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all of the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have been not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. Some important information that we receive in verse 11 that needs to be broken down is Esther is telling a half-truth right now. She's scared for her skin. She's a little fearful, but yet she's, she's talking about, and the way it makes it sound is like she's saying that, I don't know if I can do anything because all of these circumstances that potentially could happen if I was to try and do something about the situation. Even though she's grieved and fearful about the situation, she's telling a half-truth because she references a law about anyone who approaches the king, but the reason why that's a half-truth, which is really a full lie, Smile. The reason it's a half-truth is because she could have sent one of her messengers to the king to basically request an audience with him. So she didn't physically have to go at that point. She could have tried to request an audience for him before she presented herself to him. Now, here's the thing. She references three reasons why she doesn't want to approach the king. Number one is she references this law we just talked about, that she potentially could be put to death if she has not extended the golden scepter. Secondly, the possibility of her death. She realizes that uh, if I go to the king, there's a very real chance that I might not be coming back. So that's the second reason. The third reason she mentions is that she has been separated from the king. Her and the king have not basically been intimate for 30 days. And so there hasn't been communication and there hasn't been any type of intimacy between them for a 30-day window. So that is really important. So for her, she's looking at this, and if we were making a checklist, okay, checklist of good things or bad things, everything's lining up on the bad side for her. And this is playing into her fear. Please hear me, ladies and gentlemen, is sometimes when we are afraid, we will look to find everything that will continue to foster that fear. She is afraid and she has reason to be. Naturally, would you all be afraid if you had a death warrant out for you and you knew about 11 months later from the time that this warrant went out that basically you were going to be executed? Dad. That's understandable, but what she's doing is she's looking for every reason to solidify that fear as opposed to walk in faith initially. And we do that, don't we? When we're afraid, we look for every reason to, to basically validate 
not only validate, but then basically kind of almost magnify that fear and make it more intense. She's not willing at this point to risk her own skin. I want you, to, the purpose, the reason why I'm reading a lot of scripture today and putting us in this narrative is because I don't want you to miss the point just because you know the end of the story. Remember, these are genuine life and blood, flesh, human beings that are walking out this story that you and I now have the ability to see 2020. But in the moment, she's fearful. She's a woman who is a queen of an enemy tribe who doesn't know what's going to happen if she follows through or wants to do anything about this thing that is potentially facing her and her people. Let me give you a principle. Here's the thing about opportunity. is that opportunity often comes at the most inopportune times. Let me say that again. Opportunity comes often at the most inopportune time. And the reason why I believe that is the case is because if you think about opportunity, especially in the context of being a person who's a person of faith, and God working out opportunities. Opportunity is kind of this perfect storm of providential circumstances. That's what we have in this story. God's providence is working behind the scenes and setting up all these circumstances and relationships and a very twisted bachelor and all this all kind of stuff, working this stuff out. It's this perfect combination of the providential circumstances and God's timing. And how often is God's timing not your timing? I don't know if you ever experienced that before. But, I, but just because our timing and his timing doesn't align, uh, you should be able to guess rightly whose timing needs to bow in that equation. But opportunity is this perfect storm of God working these providential circumstances and then God's timing coming together in this situation to present this opportunity to say, I have an opportunity for you now to be able to walk out in faith. Are you going to take that opportunity? And it's at the most inopportune time. And we do just like Esther. We stop making a laundry list of, okay, this might be the good reasons. This is why the bad reasons. God, I, you know, I got this going on in my life right now. I can't just uproot my family. I can't do this. I can't do that. And we stop saying all these things that we can't do when God's the one who presented you the opportunity. Last time I checked, when God presents opportunity to his people, he provides everything they need to fulfill that which he desires to fulfill in them and to work through them. But it always happens seemingly at the wrong time. How many of you would honestly say that you've had an opportunity in your life that passed you by, that you allowed to go like that bull out the back gate and you later regretted? Right? It could be maybe it was that job you didn't take. It was an opportunity to serve, even in the context of a church. Maybe it was an opportunity to go back to school. Maybe it was an opportunity to relocate your family to a different situation, different circumstance. I think we miss God-given opportunities because of things like fear, insecurity, lack of faith, and outrightly sometimes flat-out disobedience. Sometimes I believe God makes it so crystal clear and he tells you over and over and over again. He might as well open the door down the side, the side right there, put a neon sign and say, this is the way you should go. And yet we still say, I ain't going. I don't see that opportunity. I ain't going. 
Let's be real, folks. Sometimes we're disobedient. Sometimes there's other things in the play, but sometimes we just are plain disobedient. We're like rebellious children. We're likened to children, right? I don't know how many of you forgot when you were a child, or you definitely don't forget if you have children right now, they don't always listen. We love them, but they don't always listen. Same for us, right? No, that's for that person. To Esther... It seems like at this moment, it's not the right time. Yet God has providentially worked all of these circumstances for a Jewish woman to be placed in power as the queen of the most powerful nation in the world at the time, of the superpower. But then let's see as the story goes on, we may think it's not the right time, but God's timing is always perfect. Look at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. So they tell Mordecai, hey, Mordecai, Esther has all of these reasons why she doesn't think that she should act upon this. She feels like she's going to die. She hasn't been with the king for 30 days. You know, he, if he doesn't extend his hand with the golden scepter, then that's it for her. All those kind of things. So they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Listen to this. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Verse 13. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. That is the statement both of confrontation and confirmation. That's a confrontative statement toward Esther to basically say, check yourself. But it's also really a statement of faith that he believes that God will still deliver. So relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is the thesis statement of the book. This is the, the passage that most people remember from this book. But look at the buildup to this point. Look at where we're at in the story to this point. Don't miss what has been going on and why he can say so boldly to her and what the decision is now faced to her to be able to do. She is uniquely positioned to do something on behalf of an entire people group. Mordecai saying, don't forget who you are. Just because you go from the ghetto to the White House, don't forget who you are. Remember where you came from. Remember who your people are. You will suffer the same fate the moment he knows that you're a Jew. Remember what we said last week is that when the king, actually a couple weeks ago, remember when the king put away Vashti, he had issued a decree, an edict. And remember because of the law of the Medes and Persians, once the king actually issued an edict and signed it basically with his signet ring, that edict cannot be revoked. So the edict has already been drawn. Haman has manipulated the king, and the death warrant has already gone out, and there's no way to retract it in that way, based upon their system of government at the time. So Esther, don't think once he finds out that you a Jew, that you're going to escape the wrath and what's coming. She could either heed Mordecai's words or ignore them. But yet she is going to act as we see 
and finally come to her senses and realize that being a deliverer of her people was more important than being the queen of Persia. If Esther misses this opportunity, then relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Ladies and gentlemen, don't get your theology twisted here. Let me tell you something very humbling to all of us. God doesn't need us. Even though he doesn't need us, he chooses somehow in his providence, and I believe it's because of his love. Scripture clearly, I think, indicates that. Because of his love, he decides to work in human history through the agency of human beings. Broken human beings, by the way, who consistently let him down. And yet God still chooses to work through human agency to do things on the human stage that we call life in history. Now, the reality is, is that if God wants something done, he's going to get it done. The question is, is do you want to be part of what God is doing when he gives you the opportunity to be part of that thing? If not, next man up. His will still will be accomplished. Nobody's going to stop him from doing what he wants to do. For accomplishing his will, accomplishing his purpose. Let me give you a principle, let me say it this way. God positions people on purpose for his purpose. Let me say that again. God positions people on purpose for his purpose. There's no wasted moves when it comes to God. Everything God does is with intention. God isn't some cantankerous child or cantankerous adult that just makes decisions at a whim. Everything God does is calculated according to his will, his plan, and completely sufficient in his nature of who he is. God does everything with intention. And God uniquely moves people in history like pieces on a chessboard to be able to accomplish his purpose. This woman is uniquely positioned in a way that can only be attributed to God for her to be at the space where she is at now, like Mordecai said, just for a time as this. There's no way you could write the story if God wasn't working to put her where she's at. Now, many of you guys know me and know that I love sports. I am a huge sports fan. I pretty much could watch just about any sport. Outside of soccer, I just don't, I don't know, I don't get it. I'm just going to be real, I don't get it. Um, but I love sports, I love watching sports. There's something about athletes who are the best at what they do and competing at those positions and seeing something as a person who loves to play sports and all that, just to be able to see sports. So let me give you a sports analogy here. Now, in every team sport, people play different positions. And those positions usually align to that person's strengths and weaknesses. Let's take football, for example. It's a football Sunday. Y'all excited for football this, for today, right? I know some of y'all are excited because a certain team is playing today. My team did not make the playoffs, so I could care less in some ways. Yes, we had a down season. Uh, you know, you win some, you lose some. But uh, let's take football, for example, okay? So in football, nobody expects a 350-pound lineman to be the one under center. Can you imagine a lineman saying, hike, and being the one who's going to take the ball and then be the quarterback maneuvering around in the pocket and then trying to throw the football? You don't expect the lineman to be under center. And the reason why the lineman is not under center is because that is not his strength. That does not play to his ability. So a good coach 
positions their players where their strengths and abilities can then be magnified for the purposes of what that team is to accomplish. The coach is going to get fired if he puts the wrong people in the wrong position. If he puts the wrong people in the wrong position, all of them may be football players playing on a football field, but that doesn't mean that they are positioned where they need to be in order to accomplish the purposes for which they are intended to accomplish on the football field. You get what I'm saying. So what happens is that God knows and positions people unique to their strengths, abilities, even their weaknesses, puts them in places where they need to be like a good head coach would do in order for them to succeed so that the purposes of the kingdom would go forward just like it would be for a good football team and the coach positioning his players on the team where they need to be so that way they can accomplish the goal of winning a football game. God positions people in his kingdom for his purposes where he wants to put them in order that his kingdom purposes will go forward. And as a good head coach, he knows exactly where you need to be. He knows exactly what needs to happen in order to get you to that spot. And frankly, sometimes, here's a sobering thought, sometimes God will remove people off of the field so that way he can insert you in because they miss their opportunity. crazy, right? But he knows what he's doing. He utilizes a woman who's from a different race, utilizes her beauty. Consistently in this story, we have heard over and over again that Esther received favor, received favor, received favor. When you think of the word favor, as I've told you in this series, I want you to think of the word grace. She's received grace, 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 grace throughout every situation, uniquely to bring her where she is. So she can be in position to where she needs to be so that she can accomplish what God wants her to accomplish. Look at verse 15, and we're going to summarize. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Listen to the way that she responds. Finally, it sinks in, and listen to this response. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days night or day, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. Look at what Esther does when she finally comes to her senses. She calls for support. She rallies the troops. She says, Mordecai, gather all the Jews in the whole entire area. Let's call fasting and prayer for the next three days. I need every person, every agent, every person of God's people to be invading heaven and to be able and to call upon Yahweh, the one true God, to call upon him that he would intervene in this situation. And then she not only calls upon others, she then herself goes before God for three days and fast as well. You want to know when God's timing is right. You want to know when you're given a God-given opportunity is get on your knees, ask people for prayer support, and hear from God. It is so amazing how we can be presented with opportunities in life that we question whether they're God-given opportunities, and yet we don't involve God in the conversation. How dumb is that? Seriously. What does she do? She involves God in the conversation. She's like, I don't know what's going to happen. I know that this, what, what is, this opportunity that's presented before me, I need to take it. So let's invade 
heaven. Let's pray, let's fast, let's cry out to God that God would move on behalf of his people. The decision that she was going to have to make was a risk. She didn't know what the outcome would be of the situation. She had to make a decision that had a possible positive outcome, but also had a very negative outcome, potentially. So my question is, when is the last time that we took a risk for God? Faith is never easy. Faith often requires us to step out of our comfort zone. God gives us these opportunities that we can seize them or they can pass us by. Let's summarize this for you. So our one true statement was that God-given opportunities can be seized by you or passed by you. Initially, we see Esther wrestling with in fear that these suggestions that it's maybe not the right time, that it's not right for her to intervene. But when she's challenged by Mordecai and when I believe God is working in her heart and she sees the opportunity that she is given, she then goes into action and she says, let's pray, let's fast. And if I perish, I'm going to perish. It doesn't matter because I'm going to do what is right and I'm going to present myself before the king because God's timing is always perfect. Here's how we can put this into practice. We got to seize the moment. For those of you who are under the sound of my voice today, all of you know where you're at in your relationship with God. For some of you, seizing the moment today may be taking that first step of faith. For some of you, that means placing your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior for the very first time. Scripture tells us that today, today is the day of salvation. That as the Spirit works on our heart and convicts us of sin and makes us realize that we are so desperately in need of a God who came to, to be with us and a God who, as we have sung, that he's for us and he's not against us. And it's God who died upon the cross to pay for our sins, who is buried and rose again. And when we place our faith in him, for some of us, there's always a moment in time when that happens. And maybe for you, that's you today. For others of you, I bet you there are some of you in this room right now who have a decision that's looming over your head. And you know that you've been presented with an opportunity. But you are maybe questioning, is this God's opportunity that he's given me? Is this an opportunity for me to exercise faith? Is it an opportunity for me to do something that God wants me to do that I feel like he's been doing on my heart? If God has laid something on your heart, my prayer is that Fear, insecurity, or any other excuse would not allow you to run from it, but that you would run toward God today like Esther did. Pray, fast, listen. Have others pray fast with you that you may seize the God-given opportunity, that you don't miss what God wants to do in you and through you. Let's pray. So, Lord, as we look at this story, we are challenged and encouraged by the reality that you are interacting with human history. You uniquely position this woman, Esther, to be in a place where she could do something that would save her people. There was fear. There was insecurity. There were a lot of things going on, Lord, that could have caused her to not execute and take this opportunity that you presented her. But I'm thankful, Lord, that you positioned her for such a time as this. And Lord, you executed the plan and your will was done. Lord, we have the benefit of knowing that now as we know the story. But I can imagine what she would have felt at that time. And for many of us, 
you have positioned us for such a time as this, to have an opportunity and things like fear, insecurity, doubt, even disobedience prevents us from walking in faith. So Lord, would you give us boldness today? Would you help us to be able to seize those moments that are God-given moments that we can be used by you to, for your kingdom purposes that your glory and your will may be done. Lord, we pray this so humbly in Jesus' most precious and holy name. Amen. We're going to take the opportunity to pray, so I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward. Every Sunday we take an opportunity to allow a time for us to pray together. So if there's something specific, whether it's seizing that moment, that opportunity today for you to place your faith and trust in Jesus, or whether it's something else, whatever it may be, please give us an opportunity to be able to pray with you. And I'm going to encourage you as we worship, you can stand, you can be seated. But remember, what we're doing right now is something sacred and holy. It's not spectator time. It's our time to process what we've just heard and be able to interact and engage with Jesus. Because God is here and he inhabits the praises of his people. And so let's take an opportunity to worship and to pray. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart.
Jesus. Mm. Y'all may be seated. Mm. Just want to stay there for a moment. If it's your first time worshiping here at Firewell, we are really glad that you are here. We believe that you have found a place where hopefully you can feel loved and experience the love of God tangibly through his people. And uh, we'd love to be able to connect with you. So on the screen behind me, there's a QR code. Or you can visit our Connection Center and fill out a physical Connect card. I'd love to be able to be in touch with you and just see how we can come alongside of you and your family, wherever you may be at in your spiritual journey, and see how we can serve you as a church. And please make sure to stop by the Connection Center. Uh, we'd love to be able to give you a gift for worshiping with us um, and just as a way of saying thank you for spending some time with us today. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to worship the Lord through giving. Every Sunday we have the opportunity to be able to do this. Uh, this is equally just uh, another act of worship. Uh, money is a tool that can be used for the kingdom. And to be able to have a facility like this, to be able to do ministry here on earth, uh, we are able to utilize that tool for his glory. And so we're asking God to be able to bless that. And thank you so much for your gracious giving. And so let's just pray over the offering. So, Lord, we are so grateful that you are the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We pray that you would bless the gift, the giver and the gift. And just thank you, Lord, that we can worship you through giving and that money can be utilized as a tool for your glory. And so, Lord, we pray that you would cause it to multiply, that you may allow us to continue to do your kingdom work here through the ministry of Firewall Bible Fellowship. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, and welcome to Firewell Bible Fellowship, where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Here's what's happening at Firewell. Youth Only will continue this Wednesday night at Firewheel. February 1st will be our final session for Couples Talk for the adults. Regular Wednesday night programming for men's and women's Bible studies and kids begins February 15th at 7 p.m. Parents, need a night out? Drop off the kids in the children's building on Friday, February 10th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. and go out on a date or get some much-needed self-time. There will be pizza, indoor games, outdoor games, popcorn, and a movie for the kids. There is no set cost for this event, but we will be taking donations that will go towards sending kids to camp. For more info on these or any of the events going on around Firewheel, check us out at firewheelfellowship.com events, or you can find us on social media. All right, if you guys will stand, we'll go in and pray our benediction and get you dismissed. Next week, we'll pick up in Esther chapter 5, and we will look at the execution of the plan, then what actually happens. So if you want to read ahead, I'd encourage you to read Esther chapter 5, and we'll be in there next week. So as you go, let me pray this over you. May the Lord go before you to light your path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you. And may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven always grant you character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. Love you all so much. You are dismissed. We'll see you all next week. Mm. Mm.